The Lord be with you. Thanks for joining us again for another week of home worship. We're into those disgustingly hot weeks of summer, and it's tempting in this season to kind of check out from worship for a little while. So thank you for continuing to make time to seek the Lord and to offer your life to God in worship. This week we're starting a new series. We've been in the Psalms since Easter, and it's been a great series, but it's time to move on. We saw in the Psalms words of God to offer back to God in prayer. We found a way to step more deeply into our prayer life together. And I hope you were as blessed by it as I was. It was so good in that season of chaos and anxiety to be just given words to pray and to find them able to hold me. We're moving on though now to Ruth, to one of... uh, my favorite books in the Bible, actually. This is one of those really great God things, too, that brings us to this in this season. I've been spending weeks, actually, trying to figure out what's next for us as we come to the end of a psalm series. I've been talking to a lot of people, thinking about a lot of different options, and just nothing seemed to click. Nothing seemed quite right. And so we just kept moving on through new psalms. But this last Monday, Ruth just kind of fell in my lap and it seemed so right. This is a story that takes place during national and personal tragedies. And it's all about God's faithfulness. And it centers around ordinary people and how in living their ordinary lives in faithfulness, there are extraordinary things that happen. We're calling the series Hesed. It's a Hebrew word that means loving kindness, steadfast love, loyalty, faithfulness. And that's what this book is all about. But before we jump in and start the story in Ruth 1, I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, the psalmist says, it's in your light that we see light. We believe that it's in your truth that we find freedom. And in your way that we find our peace. So come, Lord, and shine upon us that we may hear and know your truth and learn to follow in your ways. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. During the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man with his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they entered the territory of Moab and settled there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then only she was left, along with her two sons. They took wives for themselves, Moabite women. The name of the first was Orpah, and the name of the second was Ruth. And they lived there for about ten years. But both of the sons, Malon and Kilion, also died. Only the woman was left without her two children, and without her husband. Then she arose, 
along with her daughters-in-law, to return from the field of Moab, because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing food for them. She left the place where she had been, and her two daughters-in-law went with her. They went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you, just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you, so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they replied to her, No, instead we will return with you to your people. Naomi replied, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there again be sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters. Go, I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I had a husband tonight, and even more, if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters. This is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back with your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do this to me and more so if even death separates me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So both of them went along until they arrived in Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was excited on account of them, and the women of the town asked, Can this be Naomi? And she replied to them, Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty? Thus Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her from the territory of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This first chapter of Ruth really sets up the story for us. We find out where we are. We meet most of the important characters for the rest of the story. And we find out what has brought us here. We're really just setting the stage. But as we set the stage, there are three things that I want to make sure that you notice with me. The first is the setting. 
We catch it right away from the beginning of the story. During the days when the judges ruled. Already from the first verse, we can place ourselves historically. We're in the period of judges, which means this is after Moses brings the people out of Egypt through the, through the wilderness and to the promised land. But it's before Saul takes over as king and David after him. We're in the period of Judges. And in fact, the book of Judges comes right before Ruth in our Christian Bibles. If you're not familiar with this period of Israel's life, the last verse of the book of Judges pretty much sums the whole thing up. So if you turn back one page, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Each person did what they thought to be right. Now, while this may seem like a libertarian's dream, it was essentially the opposite of what Israel was supposed to be doing in the promised land. See, God had miraculously brought them out of Egypt, sustained them through the wilderness, and planted them in the promised land. And God commanded them there to follow God's ways, to serve God and God alone. God was to be their king, and God's law was to be their way of life the way that led them to life. And yet in this period, there was no king in Israel. Each person did what they thought to be right. The people had turned away from God their king. The nation was fractured and disobedient, often descending into chaos as neighboring nations would invade and conquer portions of the land. The judges were the leaders that God raised up to drive them out and lead the people. But often, as soon as they died, the people descended back into disobedience and chaos. It was a time of crisis, of disintegration and unrest. That's not all we learn about the setting of the story either. For in this period of judges, it tells us there's also a famine in the land. And there's some irony to this, because this family that has to leave to go to Moab is from a village called Bethlehem, which means in Hebrew, house of bread. And yet there's no food. This fertile land known for its barley and wheat has dried up. And that famine isn't just localized, it's widespread, because when this family looks for a place to go to find refuge, they have to go to a neighboring nation, to Moab, to find some food. Things must be dire. See, we live in a world that's pretty mobile. I grew up about 750 miles from here. My wife, Sam, about 3,000 miles from here. And that's not out of the ordinary in our world. But in their world, your clan, your family, your name, your village was everything. It's what gave you physical security, financial security, meaning, and identity. You didn't just pack it up and seek your fortunes elsewhere. People stayed in their village with their family for generation after generation after generation. For them to leave, things must have been bad. And so they go and settle in a foreign land, Moab. And there we find that food isn't the only thing in short supply for this family. There's another famine. Offspring. 
In that day, children weren't just something you had to fill a void in you or something nice once you became financially solvent. They were your insurance policy. They were your retirement savings, your security system, all wrapped up into one. But here in Moab, it's first Elimelech who dies, the father and patriarch. His wife Naomi is perhaps comforted that their children find wives in Moab. But ten years later, even the sons die, having left no children of their own. And the story says the woman is left all alone. No husband, no sons, no grandchildren. The story takes place in the midst of national upheaval, unrest, disintegration, and anarchy. It takes place during a collective disaster, which is causing people to struggle and die. And it takes place in the midst of personal loss and grief when the future seems as dark as night. In other words, it takes place in familiar territory, in a world we know and understand. And as the story unfolds from here, we find that it's a story about what faithfulness looks like in just such a world and about the extraordinary fruit of ordinary faithfulness. But that's maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves. I wanted to make sure as we begin this series and this passage that you catch the setting for the story. The second thing I want you to notice is a name change. Names are often very important in the Bible, and there's a number of famous name changes that we find, all of which symbolizing transformation that has taken place in someone. Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. We find a name change here too. After all this happens, and Naomi finally arrives back in Bethlehem, this is what happens. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was excited on account of them, and the women of the town asked, Can this be Naomi? She replied to them, Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty? Naomi has become Mara. And footnotes might be helpful. I said names were important. Naomi means pleasant, lovely. Mara? bitter. Why call me pleasant? Naomi asks. Everything has been taken from me. I left full and the Lord has returned me empty. There's not a whole lot that I want to say about this. God can defend himself. But I do just want to notice how devastatingly honest Naomi is. There's no Naomi, long time no see, how are you? Oh, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm all right. No, Naomi, she responds. Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, for the Lord has taken everything. (sighs) 
And she's right. Her husband died. Her sons, both of them, have died without leaving any children. She returns home with nothing but a daughter-in-law who carries the stigma of being a foreigner and who happens to be one more mouth to feed with the nothing that Naomi has. What strikes me is how brutally honest Naomi is with God and with others. And I think we would be wise to just sit with her for a minute without jumping too quickly past this or to try to fix things. Naomi changes her name to Mara. She has lost almost everything. And as the people of God, I want to learn how to be able to sit with her in that loss and hear her without having to try to fix things or lessen it or make ourselves feel better. And I want to make space for us to be able to do the same thing, to be honest with God and with each other, to pour out our heartache and our struggle and our bitterness to the God who hears even when God appears to be absent. That's the second thing I want to notice together, how Naomi takes on a new name, Mara. And here's the last thing that I want to see as we close up chapter one this week. Ruth's promise. Ruth is barren, no children. Ruth is a widow, no husband. Ten years have yielded no kids. Her husband's died as well. She is virtually destitute. Her mother-in-law hears that fortunes have changed in Israel. The Lord has taken notice of them and brought food again for God's people. And so she begins to head back. And as she's leaving, she turns to Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, and tells them to go back to their own families to find new husbands and security and praise that the Lord will deal faithfully with them for their faithfulness and kindness to the dead and to Naomi. And right there is the first time that we hear the most important word in this whole book, hesed. There is no word in English that captures and translates truly the Hebrew word hesed. We stumble around. We, we try words like kindness, love, steadfast love, faithfulness, loyalty, favor, devotion, mercy. But none of them quite encapsulate it. What's clear is that it's a relational word. It's also clear that it's not about a feeling but about action and about ongoing, enduring action on behalf of another. Hesed in Scripture plays out in family relationships, like here with Ruth and Naomi. It plays out in friendships, like between David and Jonathan. It plays out between hosts and guests, many times in Scripture, between a ruler and their subjects. But it's also one of the core ways in which God describes God's self to us. 
It's Exodus 34 when God is describing God's self to Israel on Mount Sinai, when God says, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, steadfast love. God has chosen by entering into a covenant with Israel to act faithfully toward them and to do so forever. Another famous passage in the Psalms, Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His hesed endures forever. Hesed. God's and ours is central to this story. And we're introduced to that word right here for the first time. Naomi prays that God will deal faithfully with Ruth and Orpah, that God will show hesed to them because they have shown hesed to the dead, her sons, and to herself. But Naomi prays this prayer in order to release them, in a way, from any further obligation that they may have to her as the mother of their now-deceased husbands. But Ruth and Orpah refuse to be released. And so Naomi continues, and she lays out their prospects devastatingly as she sees them. So now it would be helpful to understand something in the culture at the time called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is, is this thing where if a man dies without leaving children, offspring for his wife, that his brother, next in line, is obligated to marry the widow, take her into his house, and provide offspring for her and for his deceased brother, to continue his brother's name and line, and also to provide for the widow, who would otherwise be left destitute. Which is why Naomi says, will there be more sons in my womb to become your husband's? Where she says, even if I were to remarry, if I had any hope that I would find another husband and remarry, and if there was any hope that I would bear sons, would you wait for them? Would you go on without a husband all those years? No, my daughters. Go home to your families. Find new husbands. May the Lord deal faithfully with you. Go. In other words, you have no future with me. Go back to your own homeland. You have no obligation any longer that you are required to fulfill. There's no logical reason for you to stay any longer. And Naomi's argument is convincing enough for Orpah, who weeps one more time at the thought of being separated from her mother-in-law, kisses her, and returns back to her own people and to her own gods. but not Ruth. While Orpah kisses Naomi, it says Ruth clings to her. Clings, as in, therefore a man leaves his mother and father and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. She has no intention of leaving. And she goes a step further with this promise that also, by the way, echoes our marriage vows. Wherever you go, I will go, she says. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. And may the Lord do this to me, and more so, if even death separates me from you. Ruth has no obligation to stay. Ruth has no reason to stay. 
She is not subject to Israel's laws. She's from Moab. And even if she were, she would be free of those obligations now. By every cultural assumption, she should do as Orpah does and go home. But Ruth chooses something different. Ruth chooses to return with her mother-in-law. But more than that, she chooses to join herself to Naomi's people, to Naomi's God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth chooses to be grafted into the story of Israel, into their covenant with the Lord, and all of it out of love for Naomi. Ruth chooses Hesed. Ruth chooses steadfast love and faithfulness to be loyal to her mother-in-law and live out of that selfless and other-centered love. She chooses to go beyond any obligation she has and choose Hesed to choose, whether she realizes it or not, to mirror God's own character. The book of Judges closes saying that everyone was doing whatever they thought to be right that no one was following God's law anymore. And here, as the next story opens, we find Ruth, a foreigner, that's one strike, a woman, there's another, a widow, a third, barren, a fourth. And yet she, she is the one who chooses to not only follow the law, but to go above and beyond it to echo the love, the hesed of Israel's God. And it's that steadfast love. It's that hesed in a pretty ordinary relationship with her mother-in-law in the context of loss and grief and difficulty that changes everything. And that's one of the things I love about this story. Because as we think about what it means to be faithful to God and obedient to God and to love as God loves, we conjure up images like Mother Teresa. We conjure up images like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, in all these situations where we couldn't possibly imagine ourselves doing things so drastic and world-changing. But here's the story of Ruth, who chooses faithfulness in a pretty ordinary relationship with her mother-in-law, in a context that we can understand as the world seems to be falling apart in the midst of personal tragedy and loss as well. She chooses simple obedience in an ordinary place and something absolutely extraordinary comes out of it. Whereas Naomi sees only bitterness, believes that everything she has has been taken from her, Ruth chooses loyalty, love, hesed. And in that choice, the possibility of something more opens up. A possibility, a glimmer that we see echoed right at the end of this first chapter. A possibility we'll see play out in the rest of the story. Naomi seems only emptiness, but the story is clear. The harvest is coming.
as you discuss and digest this story together, I wonder where you've experienced hesed from God or from others. And I wonder in which relationships that already exist in your life right now might God be calling you to act with hesed too? In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.